The three martini lunch is the epitome of American efficiency. Where else can you get an earful, a bellyful, and a snootful at the same time? So says former President Gerald Ford. Welcome to Literary Guys' Three Martini Lunch, where we recap the year so far and talk about what's to come. When was the last time we were here at the Stardust at lunchtime? I don't remember, but I remember we were kicked out. Yes, but it was already dinner time by the point that that happened. Accurate, accurate. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. I'm author Zachary Kelly, and welcome. We are going to be talking about some of the books that we've read so far this year, just kind of our take on them, how we're feeling about the year, and then uh, looking forward to giving a little preview of uh, what we still got in store. But before we do that, we were talking about the book that is coming up next, which is Of Mice and Men. Yes. And this is part of our new back-to-school feature, where we read a book that is something that we assume most of our listeners have read as part of their high school curricula. And we talk about it from the context of older men. Like, I mean, maybe not that much older, but like definitely not in our high school prime anymore. So looking at the world and the books through those particular lenses. And this got us to talking before the recording began about what is the impact of other books, not just of Mice and Men, Mm -hmm. but of other books that are in the curricula now, and also, what would we like to see? Like, of the things that we're reading here, what would be something that we wish that a well-meaning high school English instructor would have brought to us that would have made an impact at that time? Which is interesting because if you look at the list of books that are still taught in high school curricula, it hasn't changed too much from when when we were in high school in the 90s. I mean, there's a few newer things that hadn't come out yet, but by and large, it's the same kind of rogues gallery of quote-unquote classic literature. You know, you've got 1984, To Kill a Mockingbird, Romeo and Juliet, The Crucible, Grapes of Wrath, and Of Mice and Men, uh, The Catcher in the Rye. Well, I mean, you're talking about a rogues gallery. you got to talk about The Catcher in the Rye, which I would argue is not J.D. Salinger's best work. For some reason, though, it connects with the high school audience. Well, it connects with the high school audience in the very least that it did provide an opportunity for its reclusive author to leave cryptic notes in libraries throughout the United States for young teenage girls to find his trailer in rural New Hampshire, where he then victimized them. True story. That's not where I was going to take this. (laughs) But still taught in high schools today. Indeed. I was going to point out that I thought one of the interesting anecdotes from the high school where you and I went is that Catcher in the Rye was taught in the classroom, but inside of the theater program there, that the people who ran it always lionized the book Franny and Zoe Mm -hmm. and would often read passages from that. And to me, going back, like I have no love lost for Catcher in the Rye, but Give me a copy of Franny and Zoe any day, and I'll open that up and find something meaningful in that interpretation of sort of late teenage life. Yeah, I think Catcher in the Rye is still taught, uh, again, completely my opinion, but I I think it's still taught because it's one of those things where an adult remembers feeling disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the general ethos of Holding Caulfield is just feeling disenfranchised. 
But I think what gets missed so often is that kids these days are disenfranchised for completely different reasons than we were, than our parents were. To me, Catching the Rye is very fixed in its time and place. Mm -hmm. It certainly was a great work of literature when it came out, but to still teach it today and to assume that kids are going to connect with Holden Caulfield today, I think is a bit of a stretch. You know, the serial killers and presidential assassinators of the 80s connected with them quite well. But Mm -hmm. moving forward, I think maybe we need to update the curricula just a bit. Well, I think looking forward into the year that we have, thinking about disenfranchised teenagers, or at least early 20s maybe, uh, to stretch it a bit, that one of the books we'll be talking about is Brett Easton Ellis's Less Than Zero, mm-hmm. which I think does a far better job of talking about that disenfranchised nature of someone who otherwise should be rather franchised, sure. a wealthy individual who has all the affordances in life, yet doesn't feel at all franchised, or I believe enfranchised would be the correct word, in society because of, you know, sort of the trappings that they have fallen into and the social model in which they exist. So you're saying in contrast to the critical race theory that the far right is so fearful of being taught in our high schools, you would like to present a book strictly about white privilege. I am not saying that that is a book that should be taught. I am saying that it is a book that we will talk about here later. And to me, actually was much more impactful in understanding that. And I do agree. I think it's one of those things that probably better to read as an adult, especially given some of the content that exists within it. But certainly, yeah, I do feel like at least touches on the teenage experience a little bit more honestly and revealing. So what is the book that you wish had been taught in high schools that would have been meaningful to you and that you wouldn't have probably discovered on your own? It's a really good question. I suppose I dwell most often on how some of the books that were taught in high school weren't taught correctly. You know, as we read Mm -hmm. uh, Of Mice and Men now, I have so much more appreciation for that novel as an adult than I ever could have in high school. And maybe that's not the right book to be teaching high school students. But I think the notion that you can teach the same novel to every high school student in America is probably a bit flawed. And I think, you know, are you a rural 100-person high school? Are you an inner-city high school with 4,000 students? I mean, those experiences are going to just be vastly different. And I think if you're going to connect literature with students at that age, I think it should be things that they can relate to. Just looking back at some of the novels that we've read, you know, over the past two seasons, Nickel Boys really sticks out to me as something that I think could be taught in high schools and probably should, to counter my previous argument, maybe be taught in every high school because it does kind of create a broader conversation about race in America while at the same time giving a very frank exploration of two teenage boys' lives. Well, you kind of stole my answer because that's where I was going to go is that Nickel Boys is sort of that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. It is a good length. It is deeply impactful. It has enough of a surprise and twist in it to continue to pull in the reader, and it is far more insightful than its word count would otherwise imply. There's so much there. The characters are so rich. The characters are of an age that is relatable to the reader, a teenage reader, and I think it's actually very impactful to read something at that age to see someone who was cut down in the prime of their life to have had so much promise 
mm-hmm. and to have had society say, no, you know, you're not good enough to be part of modern society. Like, I mean, it's such a hurtful thing to read. Yeah. And just because of where this young man had grown up and the color of his skin, that all of the other things which made him a outstanding human being, someone who had so much potential and to have that ended and to say that we shouldn't really take anything for granted, I think is much more of a strong carpe diem than most of the books which are read in those high school years. Yeah, it walks that very fine line too of being very honest in its portrayal and realistic about some of the atrocities that occurred in some of those real life all boys schools in Florida and the Deep South. But at the same time, it's not graphic about it, because I think that's one of the things that we struggle with in America is, you know, you've got kids from all different backgrounds, kids who've had different conversations and different upbringings with their parents, kids of different religious beliefs where maybe they're not allowed or permitted to read, you know, literature with strong sexual depictions or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tough thing to pick. And maybe that's why we still cling to those To Kill a Mockingbirds that are very gentle in their approach to racism or sexual abuse or something right. like that. But I I think Nickel Boys is probably a little bit more updated, but it's still not crossing the line ever. We talked a lot about that. It's almost more shocking in how matter-of-fact it is about some of the atrocities Mm -hmm. versus kind of the graphic detail of those atrocities. Something else, and I'll, I'll be a little more vague in a suggestion here, but something which I do wish had been approached more with a high school audience had been just generally the entire genre of short stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is it that we focus so much on teaching novels? Like, I think if the idea is to provoke discussion and insightful thought, why not cut to the chase? Why not say, here are maybe three stories, maybe by the same author, presenting different viewpoints? Mm. The ability to compare and contrast how one person can see the world in many different ways, to create characters, to be able to, we'll call it comparative literature here, because that's what it is, but to be able to dive into that, that's something which is entirely lost on a high school audience. And I think Joseph Conrad, Mm -hmm. that I believe we read... Heart of Darkness and The Secret Sharer. Is yes. that the... Uh, uh, we read both. In high and school, yeah. that is, I think, the closest thing to comparative literature, which I remember from high school. Fascinating. That Yeah, that's true. I, I, you may have read Of Mice and Men and Grapes of Wrath. Maybe. But maybe. maybe different, I don't think different so, Different years. Yeah, The Secret Sharer is a great example. And I, I think, to your point, it's very popular for stodgy old men like ourselves in the midst of our first martini of a three martini lunch to be talking about the youth these days and their attention span. Mm -hmm. But it is a reality. I mean, media is fundamentally different than when we grew up and students are going to have a shorter attention span just based on the media they're consuming. So why not short stories? I think just off the top of my head, you throw in The Lottery, uh, The Egg, and uh, Hills Like White Elephants. You just did those three. You could do that in two weeks time in a class And you've tackled so many pertinent issues that exist today in our society and allow literature to be a jumping off point for students' own imaginations and their own self-forming belief systems. That that sounds great to me. I don't know why they're not doing that. Even looking at the content that we've covered in a season and a half here on Literary Guys, like to say The Old Man and the Sea and Indian Camp. Mm -hmm. Like reading those two back to back, one of which 
is a novella, the other which is a short story. They give a very different view of the world. We have two different characters who are evolved, and yet they have their own prejudices, they have their own drives and motivations. And I didn't really appreciate that about Hemingway when I just read one book. It's just Interesting. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, well, that's all Hemingway had to say. Hemingway is this bullfighting, you know, crazy guy from the world. It, it, to see the range of an author like that, it not only gave much more appreciation, but at the same time, it brought this idea of how can one man talk about masculinity in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While we're on the subject, and maybe we'll cut this out because it's uh, just me going on a rant now that I'm on my second martini. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Crystal does have great service. She's... She just came over here be- <laughs> while I was talking, just swapped him out. She is Formula One pit crew excellent. Or is it NASCAR pit crew? Formula One has pit crews. I don't know. I think they both do. Okay. It's NASCAR pit crew in her efficiency uh, of getting these uh, martinis to us, which we always appreciate. So I think last season we, we touched upon a short story, Brokeback Mountain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, there was more in that book, call it whatever you will, that are... A, a, a novelette. Novelette. Actually to, novelette. There I mean, we if go. we're really going to parse hairs, it's a novelette. This is why we keep you around, because you you also had like four different words for pedophile when we were talking about Lolita, (laughs) which kind of creeped me out. Not my proudest moment, but if we're going to be scientific about things. But I think that that really is case in point. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like as a high school student to have read Brokeback Mountain. And, And I know that we went to a conservative school, and that's not something which they would have taught. I don't think so. You could argue with me if you wanted to, but like... I I don't think they were too far away from that. We were, uh, for those of you listening, we were taught by Jesuits, who, while they are uh, Catholic priests, are the most liberal of Catholic priests. This is not judgment against anyone, I know. Right, so Organizations are often different than the people within them. I I wouldn't be surprised if our alma mater was teaching something like that today. I hope they are. Same. But I honestly cannot imagine what it would be like for teenage me to have read that book wow yeah and it could have been one day in one class it's such a short story Mm -hmm. it just is so quick and i mean to me that's what that high school experience is supposed to be about it's about self-discovery i i know we talked about catcher in the rye and about this idea of being able to associate with characters who are more mature or going through that adolescent phase. I didn't find anything in them. Mm-hmm. I, I look back on so much of the literature I read and I was just like, okay, like I, I'm not getting a whole lot from this. And I think about like what was developmentally important to have read. And I mean, something like Brokeback Mountain, I mean, I think that would have been transformative. Would you have been able to relate to that as a young man? Would any of us who hadn't yet experienced love, who hadn't yet experienced that level of yearning, be able to understand a a novel of that complexity? Or a novelette, excuse me, of that complexity? No, but I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that you have to allow for those ideas, that worldview, that idea of... Here's two characters who are shunned by society, are shunned by their foe spouses, are shunned by the ranch hand who 
knew what was going on, you know, seeing these two guys, uh, the self-denial that was happening in that case. Like, there's so much there. I don't think I could have appreciated it at the time. But I think to the point of what we're talking about is that no high schooler really understands these books. Right. But they're there. They're in the psyche. They're in that back part of the brain. And that's why we as adults ask high schoolers to read these. Because it's important that those ideas be back there. To be accessed subconsciously. Hmm. To influence who we are in the best possible way. And maybe maybe that's a good way to look at it. I've always been frustrated that my favorite novel is taught in high school. Because I don't think it should be. And that's The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It was taught to me in high school, and I did not enjoy it. I appreciated the language a little bit, but I didn't get what it was trying to say. I just thought it was a bunch of boozy New Yorkers in the 1920s throwing parties. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's about boozy New Yorkers in the 1920s throwing parties and feeling a little sad about it. That's what I missed in that first read-through. But to your point, did reading The Great Gatsby, even though I didn't get it to its full extent in high school, did it plant some seeds that were then allowed to grow? And that is an interesting way of looking at it. And I wish we had a teacher here, someone who uh, specialized in education, to give us a little bit more insight. Because maybe that's what they're trying to do all along. You know, if you're just joining us, we're talking about all the high school curriculum that we'd like to see updated. And I think we've kind of come up with a definitive list. Uh, the collected works of Dan Brown, mm-hmm. Red, White, and Royal Blue. Yes, definitely. But let's not forget about Fifty Shades of Grey. Or Fifty Shades Freed. Which is the better of the two? Is that the, the better of, of three? Is that the... Fifty Shades, yeah. Freed? Fifty Shades Grayer? Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. We should there be is teaching a, there is a it. You know what? The fact that I do not know this means that we should be teaching it in high school. <laughs> it, is, it is elemental to our foundations as a English-speaking society. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, let's just throw in, uh, for the uh, heck of it, the latest novel by any of the Kardashians and or Jenners. So we're actually a little past the halfway point of the season here, and we've got some good stuff coming up in the months ahead. As we said, the reason we're talking about high school literature is next month we have Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Which really holds up. You and I both just finished rereading it. So excited to talk about it because, man... As a powerful 30,000 words right there. I read it before the season began because I had actually never read it before. And before we talked about it here, I decided to read it again. And I cannot remember the last time I sat and reread a book uh, within the period of like six months. So that's definitely saying something. After that, we're going to make a harsh right turn into... Brad Easton Ellis, The Collected Works. We talked about Less Than Zero, but mm-hmm. we're also going to talk about Glamorama, maybe a little bit of American Psycho. A Actually, lot of probably it. a, a lot, lot of, of American lot. Psycho. Okay. But we'll also touch upon all the Patrick Bateman references. <laughs> and there's a lot there to dislike. So it's fantastic. There's He's saying l- this about his favorite author. I really do like Brad Easton Ellis. Yeah. Even though I have huge problems with Brad Easton Ellis. <laughs> But after that, I look at the calendar and it says TBD. We're reading uh, TBD by the late, great author. Now, we are doing a listener's choice like we did last year. We were so lucky to read I Am Legend 
together mm-hmm. and and talk about some of those themes and probably one of those genre pieces that might have slipped outside of our radar I think as we were building the list and it was so great to have one of our listeners chime in so we've already got I think six or seven contenders right now that you and I are both feverishly reading and mm-hmm. kind of trying to find what might be the best fit for the tone of this season but we will let you know next month exactly what that is so you have a couple months lead time to read it and then we are rounding out the year with pretty much a light-hearted comic romp with Cormac McCarthy which is one of the great masters of the English language but uh, also one of the tougher authors to kind of engage with I had the experience just the other day of trying to find Child of God by Cormac McCarthy on my bookshelf because I wanted to reference a passage in it and it's as disturbing as any of his oeuvre is and only to find my fiance reading it in the living room. She picked it up and said, well, this is a book that Zach likes, so I'm going to try to read it. And uh, she hasn't spoken to me since. So that tells you anything about Cormac McCarthy and the themes that he is tackling. What a way to end our year. We actually had a lengthy discussion about Cormac McCarthy and wanting to talk about Cormac. I voted Uh, for Blood Meridian. You did. Or An Evening's Redness in the West. This is true. I argued that I also liked having listeners on this podcast. (laughs) And therefore, we ended up with No Country for Old Men, which is quite a fantastic read. It's Um, far more readable. It is. Yeah. And as we'll talk about, the way in which he writes the book and structures the narrative actually feels very disconcerting. Hmm. And I think we'll get into that more. But I'm really excited to be able to talk about that. I mean, I look forward to an age where we can have Cormac McCarthy in a high school curriculum. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure what high school that would be, but it would be fascinating. And with that, I see Crystal eyeing us. I think she sees an empty glass on the table, so it is third martini time. And therefore, time to wrap up this episode. So I have been Dr. Gordon McAllen. And I've been author Zachary Kellyan. And finishing off, giving the last word for our three martini lunch to the late, great Dorothy Parker. I like to have a martini, two at the very most. After three, I'm under the table. After four, I'm under my host. Have a great week, guys.